from the time I was in high school studying the Bible on my own. Never realized it was a basic principle of hermeneutics at the time. I can explain it now better than I could then. But I knew as a high school student that if I came across a passage that seemed challenging and I came to an interpretation, if my interpretation disagreed with any clear passage of the Bible that touches the same subject, I had to change my view because I couldn't try to spin my view or spin the Bible rather to make it fit my view because God didn't call me to edit the Bible. I knew that in high school. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Once a month, we have the privilege of getting together with a professor from Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, we want to welcome Dr. David Shackelford. He is the professor and chairman of the New Testament Greek departments at the seminary. Dr. Shackelford, it is so good to see you, sir. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Very well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. You have been teaching for a while now. I'm in my 34th year, <laughs> and just to note this, last January, I became Professor Emeritus. I'm still teaching a full-time load there, but Dr. Wayne Cornett is the chairman of the New Testament department now. I have loved being at the seminary all these years. I can't imagine being anywhere else, <laughs> and uh, God's just been real good, and it gives me an opportunity, Byron, to have a small part in training people who eventually go all over the world. What is that like? I mean, I can't imagine what that must be like for you to have that investment in realizing that God is using you to impact the world through these men and women that you instruct for the gospel. In a way, I guess it's it's just an interesting feeling in a way, and I'm I'm astounded that God would give me such a privilege. It didn't occur to me when I first joined the faculty. I was not expecting to join the faculty. And Dr. Gray Allison, the founding president, saw me at the Southern Baptist Convention many years ago and said he wanted to meet with me. Well, he wasn't my boss, so I knew that meant I was not in trouble yet. (laughs) But he didn't tell me what it was about. And so he asked me if I would go to upstate New York and help them as they opened the branch campus in upstate New York. So I went up there in 1988 and joined the faculty. Just loved teaching. I had done little of that when I was getting my doctorate and just fell in love with the whole thing. And I love the pastorate as well. It didn't occur to me the range of ministry that it might involve until I got some communications from some guys who had been appointed by our foreign mission board. At the time, it's what it was called then. And I began to receive correspondence from different people around the world and in different states that had started churches. And I realized that I'd had a part of that. Oh, Dr. Shackelford. I'm sorry if I get emotional, but I do. I think you should. (laughs) That's your heart. And I think we should emotional joy of what Jesus is accomplishing in our life and allowing us to be partakers in. And I was thinking about the Apostle Paul. He talked about seeing those early churches in Asia Minor. We read that in the scripture, which I know you've taught many times. What was it like for you, a Mississippi-born boy, raised in Arkansas, you moved to Upper State, New York? Well, I've always loved the Northeast. When I was in college, I was a music major, and I had no idea I'd be doing what I'm doing now. But I was an active part of the Baptist Student Union at the University of Arkansas. And they had a Baptist Student Missions Program where our home mission board, now it's called NAM, North American Mission Board, but our home mission board would send college students for 10 weeks to a home mission field within the contiguous 48 states. And so I applied for that. I requested to go to Eatontown, New Jersey at Monmouth Baptist Church. Our collegiate choir at church, a university Baptist church, had just taken a choir tour 
to the Northeast, and we had sung there. When I came back, my application to the HMB was already in process. I sent them a, a note requesting that I be sent to Monmouth Baptist Church, and they worked that out so I could. So I stayed up there 10 weeks and ministered in Eatontown, New Jersey, just fell in love with the Northeast. I don't know. God just seems to open up opportunities. I spent a day over in New York City, auditioned for the director of all the public school music in New York City. And for the next summer, I got to work up there for the next two summers for the New York Board of Education for the Teenage Performing Arts Workshop. It was just really strange. But God worked that out. And I just I lived in Manhattan those two summers and just fell in love with the Northeast, fell in love with the city and the people. So God had already pricked your heart. Yeah, he really yeah, had. He really had. And I thought it was interesting that you went to University of Arkansas on a vocal scholarship, was it? Music, trumpet, and French horn, yes. <laughs> I'm weird, I guess. No, I love it. <laughs> I love the diversity in your love for music. For vocal, too, though, as you mentioned. Yeah. So it was junior year in high school that you began to understand what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Yes. I was raised in church. I was fortunate to have a family that made sure I went to church. Though I've heard people complain, when my mom and daddy made me go to church, and I'm thinking, you ought to thank God for having a mommy and daddy that made you go to church. (laughs) There was never a time when I did not believe in God. When I got to about the ninth grade or so, I began to sense that if I were to die, I'd go to hell. Didn't know why. Because I was already active in everything I could be in. I was in the children's choirs, sunbeams, RAs. I'd have been in the GAs if they had let me, the girls' auxiliary. <laughs> I was in everything. I, I attended the youth choir. They let teenagers sing in the adult choir. I did all of that. I never got into trouble, never drank or anything like that. And so I was wondering, why do I feel like that if I were to die, I'd go to hell? Yes. And I began to realize more and more that it was pressed upon me. As I entered my junior year, I was already reading the Bible daily, having a daily quiet time for a couple of years prior to that, my junior year. I began to sense more and more that that would be the case. I was singing in the adult choir one Sunday night. I'd spent so much time in prayer. God, why do I feel like I'd go to hell? I believe in you. I know who Jesus is, what he did for me. Why? And we were singing an invitation to him. I surrender all. God's never spoken to me audibly, but I sensed while we were singing that invitation hymn up in the choir law, I sensed the reason that you're still lost is because you have never done that. You've never surrendered your all. Now, what God was telling me was I never had really repented. You know, I wanted to go to heaven, but I didn't want to repent. And though I was morally good, we know that's not good enough. So my sinner's prayer was simply, Lord, I do that right now. So um, that's really all I prayed. But immediately... I could sense Jesus coming into my heart, and he saved me. And that night, for the first time in my life, after I'd finished my schoolwork for a couple of years, I'd read my Bible, take notes, and pray. But that night was the first night I went home and got on my knees and prayed to God as my Father rather than my judge. Oh, gotcha. And um, I've never gotten over it. immediately began to pray about what God would have me do with my life because I was finishing my junior year, about to go into my senior year, 
and which I was knew, 1969. The next year yes. is when you sensed the call to surrender to yes. full-time ministry. I began to sense that God was leading me to vocational ministry. Didn't have a clue. Didn't care what it would be in. I said, God, I really don't care what. I just want to do it where you want me to do it and what you want me to do. That's all I care about. He began to give me a desire for the ministry, and I couldn't explain that either. But I began to have that desire, and then I began to struggle, well, God, is this what you want, or is this what I want? So I began to wrestle that back and forth for much of the next year, and the desire towards the ministry became so strong that it was like, God, if you don't want me to go into the ministry, you better tell me. That's kind of where I was. (laughs) And so I remember when I came across Psalm 37 in my quiet time, I guess close to the middle of my senior year in high school. I forget exactly. But Psalm 37 says, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Well, I thought to myself, wait a minute. My desires, as far as I can tell my heart, my desires are to do what God wants me to do. And I realized God was the one who had given me the desires. He will give thee the desires of your heart. So I realized It's not that God would give me what my desires wanted. It is that he would give me his desires. I could do what I wanted because I was doing what he wanted. Yes. To me, the Christian life can't get any better than that. Oh, that's beautiful, Dr. Shackelford. And it was at the University of Arkansas, too, that you met your wife, Susie. That's correct. Now, was she also in a music program? No, she was in elementary education at John Brown University. She graduated there. She and I met at the Baptist Student Center. Her father was a senior administrator running the food service at University of Arkansas, and we met over a ping-pong table at the Baptist Student Center. <laughs> Who plays better ping-pong, you or her? We'll not go into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed that you enjoy hunting, working on the farm, building furniture, riding a motorcycle. What kind of farm do you work on, and how did you get interested in building furniture? Well, we live on our family farm in Bahalia. It had been in my mother's family since the 1840s. We have a cemetery, actually, where a couple of the headstones have birth dates that go back into the late 1700s. The nephew of one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence is buried there, actually. Historical Society came out, toured that cemetery. You know, it's off in the woods behind our place, and we keep it fenced off, and I keep the weeds down. Sure. But we live there. I got into furniture building because I needed to do some remodeling on my house many years ago. Couldn't afford to hire it done. I decided to take the point of no return and poke a hole in some drywall to put in a shower at our tub. Almost caught a, well, I did catch a wooden stud on fire with a torch, sweltering copper, but I put it out. No damage was done. But I knew that was the point of no return. (laughs) This was before watching YouTube videos too, right? Yes, YouTube didn't exist then. I got into remodeling my home that way, and from there, my wife needed a sewing cabinet, so I started to build one of those and just built some bookcases and things. And much of our house now is with furniture I built because we couldn't afford to buy real wood furniture. (laughs) I love that. Now, I noticed that one of the topics that I was told that I could talk to you about was difficult New Testament Bible passages. So I picked a few of those that we could discuss and Uh (laughs) get as many in as possible this afternoon. Did the early Christian practice baptism for the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, 28-29 states, 
when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? First Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight through 29 again. That question, Dr. Shackelford, about being baptized for the dead. That is an interesting passage. There's no record that we know of of the uh, New Testament church actually practicing baptism for the dead. Given the cults that were rampant within the city of Corinth and the surrounding area, most commentators would agree some of that may have been going on in the church, but because Paul was writing in a defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he knew that that pagan practice was there in the area. Even some of the pagans believed in a resurrection from the dead. So the obvious conclusion then that most of your commentators would draw, I believe, would be that Paul is addressing something with which they were very familiar. So many do believe in some kind of afterlife and a resurrection of the dead in some fashion that he's saying, okay, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why are some practicing that very thing if it doesn't occur? But I do not take that at all as an endorsement of a Christian baptism for the dead. Okay. Do angels walk among us? Hebrews 13, 2 states, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Yeah. Well, of course, we have biblical precedent for that. Abram was uh, out there. His nephew, Lot, over in Sodom, had two visitors there. They clearly were messengers from God with supernatural power. God had given them a human likeness so that they might carry out his mission. And at first, as near as I can tell, Abram was not sure who they were. But he said, come on in, have something to eat and things like that. It soon became apparent that they were just really not your regular guy. Right. Also, the Bible verse that you just read, some have entertained angels unaware. So if that is a reference to celestial beings then that could be possible. The word for messenger could just be a human messenger, but clearly the context refers to a messenger from God. Dr. Shackelford, my next question is, what is the sin that leads to death? According to 1 John five sixteen and 17, it states, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will forgive him. Life to those who commit sin is not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this, all one righteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. So we've got a sin that's not leading to death, and we've got a sin that's leading to death according to this passage. That is a very difficult passage, and it's been debated by scholars and commentators for some time. Some commentaries just skip over it, but God included it in the Bible. The Bible teaches that God can forgive and will forgive, based upon repentance and faith, any sin except the one, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If that sin is committed, I would take that verse to mean that that kind of sin or that sin would not be forgivable. God is the one to judge that. And I take it to mean to move in that direction about the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. Jesus was clear about that. What exactly is that unpardonable sin? Based upon Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees, when Jesus actually brought up the unpardonable sin, it would have to be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When you say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you mean you say something against the Holy Spirit or act against the Holy Spirit's witness in your life? Or I'm just trying to understand what we mean by that. Well, it's hard to define because the Bible doesn't define it. However, the Bible does indicate 
that there are certain aspects to the unforgivable sin that would not be a part of other sins, but are germane to the unforgivable blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Anyone can resist the Holy Spirit unless you and I were saved. The very first time we heard the gospel, all of us have resisted the Holy Spirit. Yes. And just rejecting Jesus cannot be the unforgivable sin because, again— Unless we got saved the first time, all of us have rejected Jesus. So that cannot be the unforgivable sin. But in the context in which Jesus brought it up, he was in a discussion with the Pharisees who knowingly and willingly attributed the obvious works of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. He said he casts out demons by the prince of demons, by Beelzebub. That would indicate the most obvious things. I mean, when Jesus cast out demons... Paralleling that to Jesus casting demons out by the prince of demons is absurd on its face. Jesus, in fact, said, how can Satan be against himself? His house will fall. But they were consciously doing that. They knew enough of the Bible to know that Jesus could only be doing those things by the hand of God. In fact, one Pharisee said so. So it has to be a conscious and willful and ultimate rejection of all things Holy Spirit. Dr. Shackelford, is it possible to do works in Jesus' name and still be lost? Going back to your story, when you talked about growing up in Sunday school, being involved with all the activities of church, Matthew seven twenty-one through 23 states, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. That's a fascinating passage, and it reveals a lot, I believe. Because when Jesus condemned, in that illustration he gave, when he condemned those who came to him, notice that their preaching was good. We prophesied in your name. There's no indication in the illustration that Jesus gave that any of their prophecies were false. And then he said, we perform many wonderful works. So not only was our preaching good, but their performance was good. And they did all of that in Jesus' name. But it didn't matter. Jesus still said, depart from me, you who work iniquity. Jesus didn't explain everything in that illustration. But it is clear that people can do good works and still be lost. The truth of the matter is, Brother Byron, we only get to heaven if we are as perfect as Jesus is. And If left to our works, we're all in real trouble. So when a person repents, gives his heart to Christ, Jesus takes our sin upon himself, and he takes the death he died on Calvary and applies it to us, wiping out our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. So that imputed righteousness is what makes us as perfect as Jesus is. That's how we get into heaven, because the Bible says that God's not going to let anything into heaven that in any way defileth. Well, what that means is, if all my works do... Even if they're good, they still have my fingerprints on them. But when Jesus does the works with his righteousness attached, it has Jesus' fingerprints on it. Yes. So when I go into heaven, I'm not going in under my righteousness. I'm going in under his. And hopefully his fingerprints are all over me. Dr. Shackelford, that is a great way to be reminded, too, of our security, our secure exactly, position that we yes. have in Christ, too. Yes, What has been one of the more difficult sections of Scripture that you've wrestled with since studying and meditating on God's Word for so long? Oh, there are a lot of them. There are are a number of passages 
on which good, faithful men disagree. You know, you have things like divorce and remarriage, how to reconcile some of those things. They're very, very challenging. I know where I am on those things, but in doing so, there are some who would agree with me, and there are many for whom I have a great deal of respect who would disagree. At that point, ultimately, all I can do is call them as I see them with Scripture by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And as I've tried to interpret the Bible, I I believed this from the time I was in high school studying the Bible on my own. Never realized it was a basic principle of hermeneutics at the time. I can explain it now better than I could then. (laughs) But I knew as a high school student that if I came across a passage that seemed challenging and I came to an interpretation, if my interpretation disagreed with any clear passage of the Bible that touches the same subject, I had to change my view because I couldn't try to spin my view or spin the Bible rather to make it fit my view because God didn't call me to edit the Bible. I knew that in high school. All I can do is try to compare Scripture with Scripture and come up with an interpretation that does not violate another clear passage of Scripture. And that's how I've tried to handle those, but some of those that are very challenging indeed. Yeah, some deep waters we can swim in, right? They really are, yeah. Uh, Where do most students of Scripture make their biggest mistakes when it comes to application of God's Word? Wow, that's difficult, too, because it's hard for me to read the motivations of others, and I can't do that. But there's always a temptation, I think, in all of us to try to, to get the Bible to accommodate whatever favorite belief or pet sin we may have. It's easy to do that, and it's a great temptation to do that. When you think about, for example, the social consumption of alcoholic beverages. They'll love to pick on the word for wine. I've got a whole study on that. And they love to pick on that one because Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana and things like that when that is not what happened. But because the Bible uses wine, they will accommodate that mistranslation there and allow themselves to do something and in so doing violate clear passage elsewhere. That is probably the greatest temptation or a mistake that a Bible student might make. There's enough flesh in all of us for this world to have its appeal. And so it's natural, carnal, if you will, for us to try to do that. And we, our flesh always has to be on guard against that. That's a great word, Dr. Shackelford. This has been awesome. Uh, what do you appreciate most about Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary? Oh, wow. We're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> when I was considering seminaries, I wanted to go to a school that would not lay out big smorgasbord of beliefs and let me go through like a cafeteria line and pick the ones I liked. I didn't have any formal Bible training. My wife did, but I did not. I asked the Lord to send me to a place that would do two things for me. Tell me what the Bible taught. I knew I'd get all the views anyway, but tell me what the Bible taught, but also place me in a situation where I would be required to be a soul winner I wanted to win souls, but my personality is not outgoing like some is. And I'm kind of like a mouse that runs for cover when the lights are turned on in a room. (laughs) So I asked the Lord for that. I was at another seminary. My mother became very ill in critical condition here in Memphis. So I came from the other seminary to visit her. While I was here, I visited a seminary in the old Bellevue Midtown campus down there. The old Temple Israel. Yes, And I met Dr. Philip Allison, the executive vice president, Dr. Gray's brother, and he mentioned to me the witnessing requirement. He said, you know, you got a witness here. You don't get academic credit for your work. 
And again, it was as real to me as when God told me I'd never repented. I knew that I had come home, and God put me in that place. I came to Mid-America because of the witnessing requirement. And that is one of the most fascinating things to me. The seminary believes all the Bible. Among the colleagues, we have a collegiality that is desperately lacking at other institutions. That is from my personal observation. I've been to a lot of the seminaries. We have a collegiality there, personal relationship with the students that I had not sensed anywhere. And um, I never have to worry so much about me teaching something that's going to be contradicted in another classroom. Yes. We all believe the Bible all the way through. And we have a lot of variety, eschatology, things like that. But we just don't have the struggles that some of the others do. And that makes it a wonderful place. It really is a family to me. Equipping biblical leaders to light the way, reflecting the light of Christ, Mid-America is preparing the next generation of church leaders to take the good news into the world, standing on the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. You can discover more, friend, at mabts.edu, mabts.edu. Dr. David Shackelford, God bless you, my brother. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Hey, now, Dr. Shackelford, if somebody had a question or wanted to correspond with you, is there a way they could do that? They can. My uh, seminary email address is dshackelford at mabts.edu. But Shackelford is S-H-A-C-K-E-L. F-O-R-D, not L-E-F-O-R-D, because the letters were transposed. A couple of my ancestors decided to transpose those letters to keep the branches of the tree straight. Okay. (laughs) I'm probably related to every Shackleford in the area. I've got so many monkeys swinging off my family tree. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. This has been a delightful time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, friends, this is all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Again, our monthly feature with Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary professors. Always a treat for us to meet a different professor each month. Hope you'll join us next time on the program. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. And when the nutrients that God makes are depleted from your body, you will die. And I have no idea how long that's going to be. I have a tendency to overwork myself because I want to prove I'm worthy of people's love and attention. That's definitely a trap that I'm struggling with. The cutest little carousels with... um, Swimming fish? Well, no, they're the... Seahorses. Seahorses! (laughs) Seahorses! Think of that, it just left my mind. So what I had in my living room over this series of meetings were highly functioning within the church culture, biblical illiterates. So critical race theory is a way to destroy this country, destroy the family, and destroy the church. Mid-South Viewpoint is people telling God-sized stories from all walks of life. Listen Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 p.m. on AM640 or anytime with the Bot Radio Network mobile app or on Spotify and iTunes podcast.